James chapter 3, verse 13 is where we left off two weeks ago. Verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's our text for today. About wisdom. I think we all want to be wise. I believe that. Nobody woke up this morning and said, you know, I hope I'm dumb. Nobody strives for that or wants to, you know, at the end of their life, say, yeah, I, I, would, I did a good job of being an idiot. That's not the goal of anybody's life, I don't firmly believe. Sadly, some of us end up there. But I think we all desire to be more wise than we are. When a person doesn't grow at the expected rate. It used to be, growing up, that we would call that person retarded. Now, that's not a politically correct term anymore, and I don't want to use that anymore for somebody that is overcoming a physical or mental disability. But I will use it when we as Christians choose to remain infants in our faith. That's retarded. The goal of the Christian life is to mature, is to grow up, is to, to, to become those who God can use. And so we seek wisdom. Since we covered that phrase back in chapter 2, that faith without works is dead, James is continually hammering that point. He's saying it in different ways. But he, he wants to emphasize that, and he wants to enforce that in our minds, that when we say that we have faith, but our lives don't show that we have faith, we don't really have faith. You can call yourself a Christian all day long, but if your life does not line up with what you say that you are, you're just being hypocritical, right? Going to church, we've said this a couple times, going to church does not make you a Christian. You know, just like standing in McDonald's does not make you a cheeseburger. Just like standing in a garage does not make you a car. Standing in church does not make you a Christian. It's that when we have placed our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that we bear fruit in keeping with the repentance that we have, Matthew 3, 8 would say, that our lives lived out we have works that demonstrate our faith. That's what James says. Let me show you my faith by what I do. And that's the way the Christian life is, is we're demonstrating 
the faith that we have. James just wants to continue to push into that idea. He says it in different ways. Show me your faith by what you do. Last time when we met, when I was here two weeks ago, as we began chapter three, it's if you have faith, it will affect the way you speak. Our faith should temper our language. And I'm not just talking about the sailor words, although I think we should get rid of those as well. But we need to weigh all of our words, recognize that our words have impact. That silly phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is foolish. It's not true. Words do hurt. And we need to consider that as we we speak. Our, our, Our lives are to be building one another up, to speak edification, it says. Today... Last week was if you have, or two weeks, if you have faith, it will affect the way you speak. Today, if you have faith, it will affect the way you make decisions. And that's what wisdom is all about, is wisdom is helping us to make the decisions that we make in life. If we say that we have faith, then it, it will affect the way that we make a decision in this life. Like I said, none of us want to be dumb. So then we need to see... And this is what James is pointing out here, that there's a contrast between right wisdom and wrong wisdom. There is a wisdom out there that is wrong. We need to identify it so that we know not to follow it. When played out, this wisdom, one that is right, one that is wrong, the right one leads to life. The wrong one leads to death. Wow, that sounds strong, Chris. This is a matter of life and death? Yeah, eternal life and death. And I'm not just saying that because I felt like saying it and I wanted to get everybody's attention. That's what the Word of God would say. It is wisdom. Following the right and wrong wisdom is a matter of life and death. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way out there. There is a wisdom out there that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. And in case you missed it that time in Proverbs chapter 14, Proverbs chapter 16, 25, the exact same thing. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If the Bible repeats itself two chapters apart, you might want to jot it down. You might want to highlight that in the Word might want to write that on our heart. There is a way that seems right, a wisdom that seems like it's the right thing to do that ends in death. Well, that doesn't sound so good. So we need to make sure that what may seem right, we we need to test it. We need to understand. James contrasts the wisdom of this world against the wisdom of God in this section in James. And what you and I need to do today, this is what we need to, this is the step that we all need to take today. We need to see that and implement God's way. God's way is always better. God's wisdom is always better than the way of this world. And we need to understand that And not just understand it. We can't just say amen to that in church and walk away. 
We need to implement it. We need to act it out. We need to live it out in our lives. You know what the most common question any pastor gets asked? When, when somebody is seeking counsel, the, the most common question any pastor gets asked is, uh, what is the will of God for my life? That's what everybody is trying to find. Ultimately, there, there are other issues and there are other things going on. But the most, I can't figure out what God would want me to do in this situation. And if you're honest with yourself, every one of us have been there. As we have a new job coming, as we consider moving, as we consider whatever it is, we, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and we're just like, ah, I don't know. I'm not exactly hearing it. What's going on? We've all been in that point to say, what is the will of God? for my life. And then what's sad for us as pastors is far too often when somebody asks that question, what's the will of God in my life? And we point that person to the word of God. We show them, this is what God would have you do. This is what would line up with scripture. They simply reject it. They don't abide by it. They don't live it out. Now that once in a while you get the you get this bright, shining moment where somebody's like, thank you, and they humble themselves below, before that, and they say, all right, I want that, and that's the change I will make in my life, and here's how I'm going to line myself up with the wisdom of God. But far too often, people reject it. Why? As it says there in the middle of the text, because our lives are ruled by self-seeking and boasting. That's the wisdom of this world. It's, it's self-seeking and boasting. We make our decisions, or we, we could say it this way, we implement wisdom based upon what's going to be best for us. That's self-seeking. I'm going I'm to decide I'm going to take this job, or I'm going to move to this place, or I'm going to do this thing based on what's best for me. We all do that. We all want to do that. I want to do that. I want the world to revolve around me. Everybody does. You hope that when you come home from work, I, you know, I hope that when I come home from a day here at church, that I open the door and my wife says, hey, honey, I've got dinner on the table for you. The kids, we just, we put them somewhere else. You don't even need to worry about them right now. We kept them because you want to play with them once in a while, but you don't just sit down. Is there a game on? Can I watch the, can I put the game on the team? We want that in our lives. I want that. We don't want it to be all about us. We're self-seeking. And so we chase after the wisdom and sadly, the wisdom of this world, just turn on the TV today and you will see that that's what the wisdom of the world is catering to all the time. Every commercial you want watch is, you need this so your life will be better. And we buy into that consumer mentality. And that's how we judge and, and rule our lives is, is this going to make me more happy? That's self-seeking. We think that if we get what we want, we'll be happy. How, how often does that work out for you? Honestly, after you buy the fun new thing, it's cool for six seconds. You know, the, the kid at Christmas who gets the bright, shiny tricycle, sets the tricycle aside and starts playing with the box. You know, it, 
Those things appease an appetite, a worldly, a fleshly appetite, for just a moment, but that appetite gets hungry again. We think that just because we want it, we'll be happy. It's like a five-year-old who gets to pick their diet, right? I want cotton candy, and I want Coke, and I'll have some popcorn, and I'll want some dum-dums. Who would ever pick a (laughs) dum-dum? And suddenly they've consumed so much sugar that you're cleaning up puke. They thought it would make them happy, but in the end, not so much. Grabbing the porcelain small G-O-D is no fun. But we do that with our lives as well. If I just have this, if I just get the cotton candy of life, I'll be happy. Not the case. That appetite is never satiated. James would say that wisdom that is self-seeking is he lists three things there. Earthly, sensual, and demonic. Just in case you were wondering, those are not good things. The wisdom of this world, the wisdom of self-seeking is earthly, sensual, and demonic. What does earthly mean? Earthly is, uh, I'm, I'm making a decision based only on the time that I have here on earth. The 80 years or so, none of us know if we have tomorrow promised to us. Let's say we have 70 years. Let's say we have 80 years. Maybe in light of eternity, David would say our life is a vapor. The, the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years. Think about that. That's a a staggering number compared to the 80 that we live here on earth. It seems kind of foolish to make a decision based solely on what we do in those 80 years when we have all of eternity to consider. When we've been there 10,000 years. We have no less days to sing God's praise than when he first begun. Because we go on for all of eternity. It seems kind of foolish, right? If we think of it in the, 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 the timeline of eternity, it seems foolish just to make a decision that would be solely earthly, that would only impact us while here on this earth. In fact, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, why is this man beside Jesus? The wisest man to ever live, Solomon, talks about this. We're studying the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night. And and the book of Ecclesiastes is all about an experiment that Solomon did, sadly, to his detriment, that would say, I tried everything. He has a whole closet full of been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It says whatever he lent his eyes to, he allowed himself to have. 700 wives, 300 concubines, stripper girlfriends basically, in modern-day vernacular. He, he, wherever he would go, whatever he would see, he'd, you know, he had ships coming in from all over the world bringing him monkeys and peacocks. Not what I would pick, personally, but okay. Whatever he lent his eye to, he allowed himself to do. And what is the conclusion that Solomon came to? It's all vanity. It's all worthless. It's all chasing after the wind. Ever tried to chase the wind? 
Ever try to grab the wind? Foolishness. How about we take some advice from the wisest man that ever lived? Don't pursue that wisdom. Don't pursue wisdom that's purely earthly. He uses the phrase everything under the sun. And by that he means anything that's only considered of this earth. It seems foolish to make our decisions that way. So don't don't pick wisdom that is just earthly. Don't pick wisdom that is purely sensual. In other words, only considering what's going to feel good. I'm going to That's the idea behind gluttony. It's not listening to your body any longer. It's going, I want that. And I don't care what my body tells me. And your body's saying, no, you're going to explode. And you're wishing that you had your fat man pants on, sweatpants, you know, and you just keep stuffing it in. That's sensuality. I mean, when when you hear the word sensual, everybody thinks of sex, which I get, But sensuality is more than that. It's whatever we would use to please our lust, only considering that which feels good. We shouldn't do that as well. Third thing he says is demonic. Wisdom that is self-seeking is actually demonic. We need to understand that. There are things, there are choices that we make that actually stand against God, is that really a position you want to be in? Is that really where you want your life to be, is standing against God? And we need to understand that in this life, there is no neutral ground. God said, Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. There is no middle ground here. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we heard this quote at the conference, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch And every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Make sense? There is no, we can't just walk through life. You're either for God or you're against Him. And making choices based on self seeking is a statement to say, I stand against God. We don't want that wisdom, Christian. We don't want to follow those things. Remember, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, leads to death. We contrast that, the earthly wisdom, the worldly wisdom, from that which the wisdom that God gives, the wisdom that is from above is the way that James phrases it. Flip over now to Proverbs chapter 8, and we're going to see how the, the, the um, author describes what that wisdom is, that wisdom that is from above. The whole chapter is great. If you have time later, I recommend reading Proverbs chapter 8 from start to end, but we're going to pick it up in verse 22. There's two characters as we go on reading. uh, They use the pronouns he and I, or he and me. He is God in this case as we read. So every time we read the word he, he's talking about the Lord. And me is wisdom. Wisdom is speaking here, or I, I is wisdom here. And so we need to understand that as we read. So it says in verse 22, the Lord possessed me, it possessed, he possessed wisdom at the beginning of his way before his works of old. So the Lord had wisdom long before day one of creation. 
The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Remember, God is the only eternal being, meaning that he had no beginning. God always was. It's different than you and I. We live for eternity. We live, but we always, as humans, we had a beginning. God always was. And as God always was, he always had wisdom at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been, I, wisdom, have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Mountains, I want to explain that because we live in central Ohio. We don't know what that is. I saw mountains in California. It's weird. You're just driving along and all of a sudden the earth goes straight up. It's kind of strange for us that grew up here in, in, in central Ohio where everything is flat and you can see from here to West Virginia. The mountain, it's okay. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Verse 26. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was the sons of men. Now, Therefore, listen to me. Let's listen to wisdom. Let's hear what wisdom would have to say to us. Wisdom that is from on high. Listen to me, my children. For blessed are those who keep my ways. That sounds good to me. I want to be blessed. Blessed means happy. Happiness is not in the pursuit of this world or the pursuits of this world. Happiness is found in pursuing what wisdom is saying, listening to his, his instruction Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Listen, here. For whoever finds me, whoever finds wisdom, finds life. There it is. It is a matter of life and death and obtains favor from the Lord. that's the case, there is a difference between the wisdom of this world that would be earthly and sensual and demonic, and there is a wisdom that is, comes from on high that leads to life. Doesn't it make sense to lend ourselves, to invest ourselves, to invest all that we have here on this earth in the pursuit of that wisdom? It's the wisdom that would go on for eternity. It makes sense that if there is a God who created us, he knows how we're knit together. He knows how, you know, he knew us in our mother's womb, Psalm 139 would say. He knows how all things work. And in fact, none of us are outside of his grace because he holds us, he holds us together. You understand the, the power of the atom? And how many atoms you have? If you were to suddenly, if God were to suddenly let go of you, you would destroy the earth atomically. Hebrews says he holds us together. 
Whether you love Him or not, He's holding you together. And since He knows how all things work, well, then He knows what's best for me. So it makes sense to to pursue that. Listening, and by listening I mean obeying, listening to wisdom, His wisdom, leads to life. James, back in three, chapter 3, James says it this way, verse 17, but the wisdom that is, a, is from above, that is godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom that God wants to give us And he does. He wants to impart this wisdom to you and I. First of all, it's pure. What's that mean? We don't have anything outside of God. We don't have anything on this earth that's pure. 100% unadulterated. Even dove soap. Was that the one? 99.9% pure. Even ivory soap. Slightly adulterated. There is nothing on this earth that is pure. The wisdom of God is pure. It means unadulterated, uh, not mixed with anything. It can be trusted. Wisdom, hear this, wisdom from above has no other motive than God's glory and your joy. Wisdom that is from above has no other motive, it's pure in this, than God's glory and your joy. Our greatest joy is found in giving God glory. There is no greater joy that we can experience than bringing praise to the one who created us. And so the peace that comes from above, or the wisdom that comes from above is pure. Second, it's peaceable. Not only is it pure, it's peaceable. It brings peace. Anybody looking for a little peace in their life? They do a great version of it as well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. We've experienced the sorrows. We've seen the sea billows rolling. I want that peace flowing in my life. The wisdom that comes from above is peaceable. It's going to give you peace. And not only that, when you start to live that wisdom out, not only does it bring your heart peace, but it allows you to impart peace to other people. It allows you to live peaceably among all men. Um, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be son- called the sons of God. I'm sorry, but I have a lot of titles in my life. I'm a pastor. I was a worship leader. I was a garage doorman. I'm a father. I'm a husband. My favorite title for my life is that I'm a son of God. Blessed is the man who's a peacemaker, for he shall be called the Son of God, the sons of God. The peace or the the wisdom from above is peaceable. It's gentle. I like the idea of gentle. I don't like to be beaten personally. Anybody looking for a punch in the face? We can meet after church. No? Okay. Psalm 23. We love Psalm 23. Right? Everybody knows Psalm 23. Even if you haven't been in church in 100 years, you know Psalm 23. Why do we love Psalm 23? Because Psalm 23 is about us. 
Or is it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall shall not want. Oh, God is good. I'm not going to want. That's awesome. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That sounds nice for a sheep. That's a good thing. He leads me beside quiet waters. Right on. That's a, that's a, it's all about me. He restores my soul. Thank you, Lord, for restoring my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Right on. I want to live right living. Why? For my name's sake is what he says. Why does God do all of these things in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 23? Not for you. It's for his name's sake. It's for his glory that he does these things. And he's gentle. Even the rod and the staff that is talked about in Psalm 23, those come in a loving and gentle way as he molds and shapes us. The wisdom from above is gentle. It's willing to yield. Why? Because the wisdom from above is not self-seeking. Our refusal to yield is generated in our self-seekingness. The guy who cuts you off, he cut you off. It wasn't that he didn't see you. You're angry at him because he cut you off. That's self-seeking. But when the when the when we impart or when we enact the wisdom that comes from above, we have a spirit that is willing to yield, and it allows us to live other-centered. It allows us to consider what's best for my wife when I come home from work, rather than what she got for me. It's full of good fruits. In other words, our lives will be marked by this wisdom. Not only will we have a, an understanding of it, but it will be displayed in our lives. That's what the, the good works are. It's without partiality. There, God's not partial to whom he imparts wisdom. All who ask of it, that's what we learned in chapter 1. Anybody who asks of God's wisdom, he gladly imparts it. Just don't be double-minded when you ask for it. And it's without hypocrisy because God cannot lie. So if that's true, If there is a a wisdom that is of this earth, and that wisdom is to be rejected, and there is a wisdom that comes from above, and that's to be received, then it's my responsibility to submit myself to the wisdom that comes from above. You tracking? For us as who declare Christ as our Savior, we cannot just say that He's our Savior. He is also our Lord, meaning He has authority over our lives. And so he must, we must, our responsibility is to submit our lives to the wisdom that comes from above. 2 Timothy 3.16, one of our watershed texts. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, complete meaning mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that means if we're submitting ourselves to the wisdom of God, to the authority of God, that means I am no longer the highest authority in my life. Christian, we have to get a hold of this concept. I pray, that is my earnest prayer today, that we all would understand that as declared followers of Christ, we are no longer our own highest authority. 
We allow God and God's word to declare what is right for you and I. I don't get to pick and choose what's right for my life any longer. I live my life in accordance with the word of God because the word of God is now my authority. It's where I get my wisdom from. And so therefore, we're going to do a case study. How does does this play itself out in life? Well, thankfully, sort of thankfully, we have a situation that's occurring in this nation at the moment that allows us to see the right way for this wisdom to be played out. And so I give you the second half of my sermon now. I know I'm going long. Hang in there. I'll try to go as quickly as I can. Two weeks ago, when we were here last, when I was, Michelle and I were here last, we did the first half of James chapter 3, which was all about the tongue, and that our words have weight. And in light of that, as I said at the end of my message, I opted not to speak at that point on what the Supreme Court decided was right for our nation in regards to homosexuality and marriage. I said, I don't want to just spew off at the mouth. I'm not here to spread venom. And, the, and, and, and I needed to take a step back and to pray about it and consider my words as we address this very important issue. So I have weighed these things. And I have prayed over these things. I'm going to make my statement first. And I want everybody to hear it. And then we'll, we'll kind of lay it out for us and what it means. This is my stance on the Supreme Court's decision. I'm going to read it because I I don't want to mess up what I'm going to say. I believe that the United States government has erred in the passing of the law permitting homosexuals to marry one another. The passing of this law is contrary to the word of God. And therefore, I conscientiously dissent from upholding and obeying this law. This is both my personal stance and the stance of this church. We are currently writing it in our church bylaws to state that we will not perform any same-sex marriages by defining marriage as the union between one man and one woman. That's what I believe. I believe that the government has erred in this matter. And so I willfully Dissent from the law. I will not uphold this law ever. Can we as Christians do that? Can we be disobedient? I mean, doesn't Romans chapter 13, and I'm going to read it, tell us to obey the government? I taught that as we went through it in Romans. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed of God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want, it to, be, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes. 
For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's what Romans chapter 13 would say about us obeying the government. So how can I say that I willfully dissent against this law? Well, because the United States government is not my highest authority. The Word of God is. The Word of God is my ultimate authority. And so when the United States government makes a decision that is contrary to the Word of God, I submit myself to the Word of God. My allegiance is to Him and to Him alone. Acts chapter 5 would back this up. I don't, I'm not just making this up. We saw the apostles do it. In Acts chapter 5, verse 27, Peter and Paul, or Peter and John, they said this. And when they had brought them, Peter and John, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Didn't we strictly command you to not teach in this name, the name of God? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. They were upset over what Peter and John were doing. Listen to the reply. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. And that's where I stand. If the law of the land is contrary to the word of God, I will always choose to stand with the word of God. No matter what it costs me. No matter what it costs me. Somebody said it this way. From this statement in Acts chapter 5, it is clear that as long as the law of the land does not contradict the law of God, we are bound to obey the law of the land. As soon as the law of the land contradicts God's command, we are to disobey the law of the land and obey God's law. However... Even in that instance, we are to accept the government's authority over us. This is demonstrated by the fact that Peter and John did not protest to being flogged, but instead rejoiced that they suffered for obeying God. And that's why I say, come what may. And Michelle and I talked about this while we were gone. What happens if it comes to me being arrested and going to jail for taking this stance? I'll do it. It sounds extreme, but what happens if the government would demand my life? I'm sorry, I'm not being disobedient to the will of God. I'm not, I'm not going to be contrary to the law of, of, of my highest authority. I would consider it an honor to die on his behalf and for his glory. Ultimately, it's an authority issue. That's what this whole law bows down to or, or sums up to. Either we hold the belief that God and His Word is the highest authority and we subject ourselves to what it says or we confirm and conform to the pattern of this world. Romans 12.2 tells us clearly not to do that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. As we were going through chapter 12 of Romans, what we said, the pattern of this world is, is that man elevates himself to the highest authority. And we're not to do that. God is to live, be over our lives. Sin is us conforming to the pattern of this world. And if you hold that view today, you need to repent. 
and determine that you're going to live your life in accordance with God's word. And that God's word will be your authority. And when our understanding differs from what God's word says, it's not God's word that changes, it's us that change. We align ourselves with the word of God. As we watch these things happen, We live in a sad day, hard day. We live in a day that our government no longer values the Word of God. And so sadly, and I'm just going to call it like it is, I think we have to classify our country as post-Christian. We, we have grown to the point that we, as the, the followers of Christ, are a minority in our own land. For those of us that are patriotic, and I am patriotic, this is a sad thing to have to admit that we no longer live in accordance with what this country was founded on, the Word of God. That the laws of the land are no longer tempered by that wisdom which comes from above. It's okay for us to mourn that. I do. But to refuse to accept what is happening is foolishness as well. It's, it, it's of no value. And I know people quote, and in fact, we, I think we handed out these cards Last week, and it even says it on these cards, Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive and their sin and heal their land. Great verse, and yes, pray, please. We need people to pray. We get four people to show up to a Sunday morning prayer meeting. We need more people to pray. Absolutely pray for our country. But understand that the promise given in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 was given to the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel was defined by a territory. And so when, he, when God says, I'm going to heal their land, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, talking about the physical land. America is not God's nation. Israel is. We the church can hold this promise. And God, if we humble ourselves, like it says, and we turn from our wicked ways, the church does that, then we will hear from heaven and God will heal us. God will heal the church. I don't know about you, but I feel that often the church is so ineffective because we're so wrapped up in our sin. And if we would take seriously 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and say, Lord, heal us. Heal the church. Pour out your spirit on us. I don't believe that applies to the United States of America, that promise in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. But I don't want to paint a picture that's doom and gloom, because I think that's contrary to the word of God. I believe what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Even this heinous decision by our government is going to work together for our good. 
the Word of God. I believe it. How can this be good? I heard it said at the conference, I'll say it to you. You and I today live in a country where our faith is going to cost us something. That's a good thing. Far too long we've, we've coasted through this life. And now we live in a place that if we stand up and say we believe that God defines what marriage is between one man and one woman, that, that we stand by that standard, we live in a day that that may cost us something. That's a good thing. It's about time that we experience a little bit of what our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing. The church grows under persecution every time. It is by being persecuted, by us being the outcast, that the church blooms and grows. So this is a good thing. Therefore, I called our nation post-Christian. Let's not call it post-Christian. Let's call us, we're in a state of pre-revival. Right? <laughs> there is this moment coming, this wave that is coming, that is promised in the book of Joel that he will pull her out of spirit on all men. A young man will see visions, an old man will dream dreams, or I don't know how it goes, but it's just, there's this promise of the Spirit of God being poured out in the last days, and we're another day closer to that. So we don't look at it as, well, we live in a post-Christian nation, there's nothing we can do. We look at it as God is getting ready to move in a great and fantastic way. We live in pre-revival. Let's start praying that way. Begging that God would move. The contrast between, or when the contrast between the light and the dark is greater, that's better for the church. And we stand at a, a place that we have not yet experienced in this generation, where the church is completely different than the majority of our nation. So what do we do? Well, this is not the time for us to go out and bash homosexuals. Homosexuality is a sin as aligned with God's word. It says it throughout. But so is fornication. So is adultery. So is divorce. Oh, we don't talk about that one too much. It's not time to go out and bash homosexuals. We love. That's what we're to do. We love. That's what's marked, that's what marks the Christian life. We love. Love is not tolerance of sin. That's the way the world would want to define love in this day and age. Love is not tolerating somebody's sin. Love is telling people that God has made a way. And they don't have to live in their sin any longer. Love is sharing the gospel. Love is telling people that they don't have to be trapped in their sin. You know what the, 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 the law is going to do? It's just going to extend people's misunderstanding of what is right for their life. The, the homosexual that gets married today, still at the end of his life, is going to say, I found no satisfaction in this. Why? Because what God has placed in our heart is a longing for him. And that can't be satisfied in anything of this world. Spewing hatred is not going to win anybody to Christ. We need to weigh our words. My first response when I heard that the, the law had been passed, and maybe you said this as well, was come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And you know what? That's the wrong thing to say. Because what that means is, I want out of this world. I'm ready to check out and damn everybody else to hell. Wrong attitude. I had to heart check myself there. Lord, delay your coming if possible. That others may come to know you. That they may see the truth that the lie that they're living is not going to end up in satisfaction. It's going to end up in disappointment. I'm going to close today by reading an article from a man named Kerry Newhoff, who is a pastor up in Canada. Same-sex marriage has been a law in Canada for 10 years now. And so he's, as a pastor in the land, has experienced how it is for us as Christians to live. And he wrote a blog that I thought was incredible. I want to read it to you. Some advice on same-sex marriage for the U.S. church leaders from a Canadian. Hey. <laughs> I write from the perspective of a pastor of an evangelical church in a country where same-sex marriage has been the law of the land for a decade. That does not mean I hold any uniquely deep wisdom. It does mean we've had a decade to process and pray over the issue. I hope what I offer can help. It's my perspective. My fingers tremble at the keyboard because my goal is to help in the midst of a dialogue that seems far more divisive than it is uniting or constructive. Number one, the church has always been countercultural. Most of us reading this post have been born into a unique season in history in which our culture is moving from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture before our eyes. Whatever you think about history, theology, or exactly when this shift happened, it's clear for all of us that we, the world into which we were born no longer exists. Viewpoints that were widely embraced by culture just decades ago are no longer embraced. For some, this seems like progress. For others, it seems like we're losing something. Regardless, things have changed fundamentally. But is that really such a big deal? For most of the last 2,000 years, the authentic church has been countercultural. The church was certainly countercultural in the first century. Even at the height of Christendom, whatever that was, the most conservative historians would agree that Christianity, as embraced by the state, was different than the authentic Christianity we read about in Scripture, or that was practiced by many devout followers of Jesus. Being countercultural usually helps the church more than it hurts it. If you think about it, regardless of your theological position, all your views as a Christian are countercultural and will always be. If your views are cultural, you're probably not reading the scriptures closely enough. We are at our best when we offer an alternative, not just a reflection of a diluted or hijacked spirituality. Number two, it's actually strange to ask non-Christians to hold Christian values. As the Barna Group has pointed out, a growing number of people in America are best described as post-Christian. The majority of Canadians would certainly qualify as having a post-Christian worldview. The question Christians in a post-Christian culture have to ask himself is this, why would we expect non-Christians to behave like Christians? If you believe sex is a gift given by God to be experienced between a man and a woman within marriage, why would you expect people who don't follow Christ to embrace that? 
Why would you expect people who don't profess Christians to wait until marriage to have sex? Why would you expect them to clean up their language or stop smoking weed or be faithful to one person for life or pass laws like the entire nation was Christian? Seriously, why? Most people today are not pretending to be Christians, so why would they adopt Christian values or morals? Then he says, please don't get me wrong, I'm a pastor. I completely believe that Jesus is not only the way, but that God's way is the best way, and that's what all of today's message has been about. When you follow biblical teachings about how to live life, your life simply goes better. It just does. I do everything I personally can to align my life with the teachings of Scripture, and I'm passionate about helping every follower of Christ to do the same. But what's the logic behind judging people who don't follow Jesus for behaving like people who don't follow Jesus? Why would you hold the world to a same standard you hold the church? First, non-Christians usually act more consistently with their value system than you do. It's difficult for a non-Christian to be a hypocrite because they tend to live out what they believe. Chances are they're better at living out their values than you and I are. Jesus never blamed pagans for acting like pagans, but he did speak out against religious people for acting hypocritically. Think about that. Number three, you've been dealing with sex outside of traditional marriage for a long time. If you believe gay sex is sinful, it's really no morally different than straight sex outside of marriage. Be honest. Pretty much everybody in your... Every unmarried person in your church is having sex. Yes, even the Christians. I know we want to believe that's not true. I want to believe that's not true. But ask around. They'll discover only a few really surrender their sexuality. Not to mention the married folks that struggle with porn, lust, and a long list of other dysfunctions. Believe gay marriage is not God's design. You're really dealing with the same issue you've been dealing with all along. Sex outside of God's given context. You don't need to treat it any differently. By the way, if you don't deal with straight sex outside of marriage, don't start being inconsistent and speak out against gay sex. You may want to start dealing with gluttony and gossip and greed while we're at it. At least be consistent. Humbly address all forms of sex outside of God's marriage. Number four, the church never looked to the government for guidance. Having a government that doesn't embrace the church's values line for line actually puts Christians in some great company, the company of the earliest followers of Jesus. Jesus spent about zero time asking the government to change during his ministry. In fact, people asked him to become the government, And he replied that his kingdom is not of this world. The Apostle Paul appeared before government officials regularly. Not once did he ask them to change the law of the land. He did, however, invite government officials to have Jesus personally change them. Paul constantly suffered at the hands of the authorities, ultimately dying under their power. But like Jesus, didn't look for them to change. Rather than asking the government to release him from prison, he wrote letters from prison talking about the love of Jesus Christ. Instead of looking to the government for help, Paul and Jesus looked to God. 
None of us in the West are suffering nearly as radically as Jesus and Paul suffered at the hands of a government. In fact, in Canada and the U.S., our government protects our freedom to assemble and even disagree with others. Plus, it gives us tax breaks for our donations. Honestly, we don't have it that hard. Maybe the future North American church will look more like the early church, rising early before dawn to pray, to encourage, and to break bread. Maybe we'll pool our possessions and we'll see the image of God in in women and love our wives radically and deeply with a protective love that will shock culture. Maybe we'll treat others with self-giving love and even offer our lives in place of theirs. Maybe we'll be willing to lose our jobs or our homes or our families or even our lives because we follow Jesus. That might just touch off a revolution like it did 2,000 years ago. Perhaps the government might even take notice, amazed by the love that radical Jesus followers display. Number five, our judgment of LGBT people is destroying any potential relationship. Even the first 72 hours of social media reaction has driven a deeper wedge between Christian leaders and the LGBT community. Jesus loves. Hear that? Jesus died for the world because he loves it. Judgment is a terrible evangelism strategy. People don't line up to be judged. We want to keep being ineffective at reaching unchurched people, just keep judging them. Judging outsiders is unchristian. Paul told us to stop judging people outside the church. Jesus said, God will judge us by the same standard with which we judge others. Paul also reminds us to drop the uppity attitude because that none of us were saved by the good we did, but by his grace. So, take a deep breath. You were saved by grace. Your sins are simply different than many others. And honestly, in many respects, they're the same. People don't line up to be judged, but they might line up to be loved. So love people, especially the people with whom you disagree. Greater love, Jesus says in John 15, has no one than this than the one who would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus says, I count you as friends. He says in John I can't remember if it's 12.35 or 13.35. I always mess that up. I think it's 13.35. That the world will know that we are followers of His by the love that we have one for another. So going back to where we started, what does your life look like? Are you lined up with the authority of God? Is the Word of God your standard for all the decisions that you make? Are you seeking the wisdom that comes from on high? Are you content to live with a wisdom that is merely earthly and sensual and demonic? I pray that's not the case. And anywhere that our hearts and our lives line up with that, let's repent of that now, today. Let's adopt and adapt to the way of God, which is love. Amen? All right. I know it went long. Thank you for sticking with me. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer.
you have any questions, concerns, um, I'd be happy to talk with you. If you have anything that you want to pray about, we'll have some people up here up front. Maybe you sat in today and you haven't given your heart or life yet to Christ. You say, you know what? I have been chasing the things of this world. and I want to take a step to say, no, I'm going to live for him. I want his wisdom. Come forward. People up here will be happy to talk with you, lead you in a prayer that leads to salvation. God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you hold the authority over our hearts and over our lives, and we no longer want to conform to the pattern of this world. We do live in a post-Christian nation now, Lord, but let's look at it, help us to see it as pre-revival, Lord, and we as the church are begging you to pour out your Spirit in these days. Lord, may we rise up and be the witnesses that we have always been called to be. Help us to stand firmly and boldly for you in a loving way. Where we've erred in judging the world, expecting them to act like Christians, forgive us, Lord. Where we've driven the wedge between us and those that would think differently, Lord, forgive us. Help us to reach out in love, not to compromise in our faith or in the ways or the law of God, but to love, sharing the gospel with all we come in contact with. We love you, Lord. We sing that at the end of every service. I pray that our lives would show that, that our faith would not be dead, but it would be with works. In Jesus' name, amen.